0: can grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 14. We're going to pick back up where we left off in verse 13. And as you're getting yourself situated, I came across an old comic strip cartoon, uh, Charlie Brown. Some of you are old enough to remember Charlie Brown. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. You'll still get the point. In this comic strip, Charlie Brown is, is sprawled out and he's watching television when Lucy storms into the room demanding that he change the channel. And when Charlie Brown asks meekly, as he, as he often does, what gives her the right to make him change the channel, she responds, these five fingers, as she shoves his fists under his nose. And after changing the channel, Charlie Brown is uh, seen walking out of the room, holding up his open hand and saying to his fingers, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> uh, there's power in unity. And specifically when it comes to the church, when the church is mobilized and organized and unified The church of Jesus Christ is truly an unstoppable force in this world, and the church is called to fight for unity because it is so precious to God, because it so reflects the gospel, and because it is so essential to the mission. But the reality is, is that the church can very easily and quickly become divided. There are many issues that can divide the church, and there are good reasons for churches to divide, primary reasons, reasons that are of significant doctrinal importance, issues that revolve around the truthfulness of the gospel, very clearly primary issues that if you do not believe, you cannot be saved, but there are lots of what we call secondary issues, issues that are not of primary importance but can have a dividing effect in the life of the church. And that's what Paul has been dealing with in this chapter of the Bible, in Romans chapter 14. He's been looking at secondary issues that could potentially divide the church, that could destroy the unity of the family of God. Now, again, it's really important to understand that what he's talking about here aren't biblical doctrinal issues or moral behavior Paul will go after those things if they're significant. He'll go after those things tooth and nail. He'll fight for those things every day. But here what he's talking about are disputable matters that arise specifically in this context over the application of the Old Testament law. How does the the Old Testament law that we read about in the first five books of the Bible, specifically the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, how do they now apply to believers this side of the cross? And in the early church, this is a significant issue. The early church made up of Jews and Gentiles, they've just entered into a new covenant. And so now they're trying to figure out in this transitional stage in the life of the church, how do we understand this Old Testament in light now of what Christ has done in the gospel? And so what we're dealing with in this specific context these secondary issues, they're primarily in the area of custom and practice. That's really important to understand. Specifically, he talks about food and festivals. Are we allowed to eat certain foods? Must we still um, celebrate certain festivals, certain days of the week? And Paul calls these in the previous section, the first few verses of chapter 14, he calls these opinions or other translations call it debatable things. Now, there's two groups of people that he's dealing with. He's categorized these these two people who are kind of going at each other or potentially going at each other as strong and weak. Those are not derogatory terms. He's not using those in some kind of condescending way. He's simply using those to help us understand the the spiritual maturity of the individuals involved and the way by which they are approaching one another— approaching the issues that they're facing. And what we see is that the weak judge the strong while the strong despise the weak. Okay, The tendency is for the strong to despise the weak. They're they're informed in one sense, but they're elitist. They're often elitist. They look down their nose. I can't believe you don't understand these things. It's pathetic. It's not okay. You need to get with it. You need to grow up. You need to mature. You need to be more like me. That's what the strong have the tendency to do. The weak, on the other hand, have the propensity to judge the strong. They look at the strong, and they think the strong are doing something wrong by what they practice or don't practice, by what they eat or don't eat. And so they're looking down their nose and thinking, you guys must really not love Jesus. How could you do such a thing if you really love Jesus? And so what you need to see in this passage is that these two groups are on a collision course. And this is instructive for us because there are lots of secondary issues that can divide the family of God. We may not be facing the exact issues that they're facing in this context, but we certainly have our issues that can divide and separate secondary things upon which we have many opinions and disagreements So, here's the question. How are we going to handle differences that arise over matters of conscience to which the Bible doesn't speak directly or definitively? Or even if it does, they're just simply not not that big of a deal. They're not determinative in terms of somebody's salvation or even their, their spiritual status before God. What's really fascinating in this passage is that Paul's goal isn't to resolve the issues or to argue a particular point of view, even though he has one and he has the right one, his goal is actually much bigger than that. In light of the differing opinions and convictions on secondary issues, how can we worship together without destroying one another? Do you see his point? But Paul's point is this, how can we, even though we differ, how can we still remain unified in the family of God? Last time, we looked at our attitude and how critical that is when we approach one another, when we differ with one another. The attitude, we looked at three different areas, three different areas of our attitudes or things that can shape our attitudes. Uh, We're all saved by the same gospel. We all serve the same Lord, and we're all going to stand before the same judge. And when we think about those things in relation to one another, that should begin to shape our attitude. But what what Paul does here is he shifts now towards our actions, how we behave, the things that we do that can either hurt or help the unity in the church of Jesus Christ. And so let's read the text together. He begins in verse 13 saying this Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil." For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. I want to walk through this passage by asking four questions. And we're going to kind of use those questions to kind of extract the marrow from this passage. Four questions to help shape our actions as we fight for unity, okay? Four questions to help shape our actions as we fight for unity. Here's the first question, how can my actions create problems? This is a a very natural starting place. This is the whole point of what Paul has been dealing with. There are problems that are occurring in the life of the church that are disrupting the unity. And here in verse 13, he tells us the answer to this question. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another. He reaches back to the previous section. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. There's a decision that we must make if we want to fight for unity. We must be unwilling to do something that would be a stumbling block, that would cause our brother or sister to to trip up in their spiritual life, some kind of, of hindrance, a blockade, a barrier that prevents them from becoming who they're supposed to be in Christ Jesus. And the point that he's making here is very simple. Our actions have the potential to hurt one another and we don't need the Bible to tell us that to know that that's true, right? We all know that experientially. Every one of us knows that our actions have hurt other people, and every one of us has been hurt by the actions of others towards us. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, we've all seen this experientially at some point or some area in our life, and we will continue to see that. But here, what he points out is that the actions of the strong were destroying the consciences of the weak, okay? That's what you need to see. The destruction is not external, it's internal. It's an attack on the conscience of the weak. See, what, is, what does this mean to not hinder your brother or put a stumbling block in front of your brother? Well, here we see the, the weak person is the one whose conscience is not properly informed by the gospel, by the word of God. And so what's happening is this weak person is, is unsure. They're, they're vacillating or they're convinced in their mind that something is wrong when really it's not wrong, but, but, but they can't really process why, they can't get themselves out of this mindset, and so their conscience is plaguing them. They couldn't in good conscience do what other people seem to do so freely and so easily. To them, they believe it's sin, they believe it's somehow dishonoring to God, and so so their, their conscience stops them, prohibits them from moving forward. Look down at verse 23. It says, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. This is the issue. He's doubting whether or not he can do something, specifically, eat this meat because the eating is not from faith. In other words, he can't do it believing that it's okay before the Lord, and so here the Scriptures say, then don't do it, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You see, what is not sin becomes sin if it is not done in faith. And he's just flushing this out. For them to eat meat or drink wine or not celebrate certain days is wrong at this time based on what they currently know and believe. And part of what he's saying to the strong, you have to see this, he's speaking to the strong who understand their liberties, who are free to to do these things. And what he's saying to the strong is be careful that you don't destroy the conscience of the weak. You, You can't just come along to somebody who's weak and impose upon them the things that you know to be right in the Lord. You can't force people to just eat bacon if they don't want to eat bacon, even though they should eat bacon. But, amen. Like, it would, be, it would be disastrous to invite a, a brand new maybe Jewish convert who's been living kosher their entire life to the men's bacon fest ministry. Probably wouldn't be wise like day two after salvation. You see, but that's what's happening in the life of the church, okay, is, is all of a sudden these Jews who all this, this stuff has been forbidden by the Old Testament law, and then compounding on top of that you have the pagan rituals that have used these, these, this meat, okay, in their sacrifices to their gods that are really no gods at all. And so, think about this. That you have these Jewish people in this context, where, where they're seeing in the marketplace meat, and here's the question they're asking. Has this meat been sacrificed to a false god? I, I, if I can maybe put it a little more crassly or bluntly, is this demon meat? Not the meat of a demon, but this is meat that is offered to a demon because if it has been, here's what they think. There's no way I can eat this because I'm a believer in the one true God, Yahweh, and I sacrifice to Him alone. Therefore, anything that's been sacrificed to any other God must be unclean. That's what they're thinking. Or the wine, same thing, used in pagan rituals, pagan festivals, pagan worship, and so they're just they're trying to process these two things. How does this work? And, and there's, you know, there's the conscience is convicting them. The weak are not yet informed by Scripture. Here's what happens, okay? Or, or they are easily tempted and need some boundaries. Here's what happens in the life of the church. It's one of those two things, okay? O- oftentimes, here's, here's what happens in the life of the church. There are some people in here, maybe who've been saved, from a pagan background, I just mean like a a really sinful background. Maybe you lived your life um, in drinking, and drugs, and you listened maybe to a certain kind of music, and and you did certain kinds of things, you went to certain kinds of places that maybe weren't inherently sinful in and of themselves, the, the drunkenness and the drugs aside, but, but listen, but now that you're saved, when you think or you go to these places, you think about these other places or things that you did or the parts of your old life, you associate them now with sin, and so you, you, you get this sense inside you that, that there must be something wrong with that. I, I don't think that's primarily what's happening here. I, I think, although that happens, and by the way, when that happens, some of us need to set boundaries over certain things in our life to protect us maybe from being tempted back into a certain lifestyle. It's not what he's talking about here. The weak here are not yet informed by Scripture. They don't quite understand what the Scripture says. I am getting ready to, uh, to head off on a, um, a missions trip. Actually, tonight, um, Rowan, one of our elders, and I are going to be flying out to Romania to do some work with our sister church there, the church that we helped to plant, and really excited about that. But it started making me think about some of the other missions experiences that I've had because oftentimes what we're dealing with here is a little bit cultural or contextual And I'll never forget, for years, we did missions work in Nepal. And uh, we helped to plant churches in Nepal. And me and a group of pastors would go to Nepal. We went there for about three years in a row. And we kind of did a little mini seminary, a little mini training with uh, the pastors out there, preparing them for ministry. And I'll never forget, we we used to do Q&As. They used to keep us up till the wee hours of the night. They just wanted to pick our brains on every single issue imaginable. And the topic of alcohol came up. And and the question that they were asking was this, Was like, it, you know, what do we do with the Christians in our church who drink alcohol? That was the question. We're like, uh, what do you mean, what do you do with them? Like, hug them, love them, I don't know. But we started kind of picking at it a little more. And, and in, the, in the context of Nepal, Nepal is a very poor country, very poor country. And most people can't afford alcohol. But what's commonplace in the culture is that you only buy alcohol if you want to get drunk. Okay, there's no like, it's not like, you know, North America or Europe where, you know, you know, you, you have a nice glass of red wine with your meal. You know, you go ladies night out, little bottle with the ladies, boys go out for a beer and just have, you know, a drink, nothing like that. You only buy alcohol to get drunk. And what happens in the context is usually the, the, the women the men don't work. The women are making this a meager income. Whatever income they bring home, the men grab and they go buy alcohol. They get drunk and they beat their wife and kids. So so listen. So when they hear alcohol, you know what they think? Drunken wife beaters. That's it. That's all they hear. And so, so we're listening to this. We're like, okay. Well, okay, well, let's talk about what the Bible says. This is always a good policy, right? When you're trying to understand a good theology, just go to the Word of God. So we said, like, well, what does the Bible say? And here's where the response, the Bible says you're not allowed to drink alcohol. And so we're like, well, where does it say that? And they opened up to a bunch of passages in Proverbs and Ephesians where it talks about not getting drunk. So, so here's what we did. We asked them this question. We're just trying to pick at it a little bit. So, so we asked, does the Bible say you can't drink wine? And their answer was, yes. Okay, so we, we picked at it a little bit more. Um, okay, did Jesus drink wine? No. This is their answer, no. We're like, what about the Passover? It was grape juice. <laughs> oh, okay, did Jesus make wine? You guys know the parable, right? You know the first miracle of Jesus. Did made pretty good wine, apparently. Did Jesus make wine? No, no. So what they said, no. Nope, no way. So what do we do? What what do we do? Well, We brought him out to the bar later that night and lined up the shots and said, no, have, no. No, no, you know what we did? We very carefully tried to explain to them the Scriptures, and we, listen, we, we tiptoed around the issue, because this was not an issue that was going to be solved overnight. There was something ingrained in the culture and something ingrained in the conscience that we were not going to trample on. We wanted to help them rightly understand and apply the Scriptures, but I'm telling you, in people who've been living a particular way, thinking a certain way for so long, the switch doesn't get flipped overnight. And so, it requires great patience. And the answer is that we are not to force upon others and violate their conscience. It would be disobedience to God for them, and so Paul treats that very seriously. Here's what you need to see. Paul is less concerned about the issue, and he's more concerned about the people, okay? He's less concerned about being right on the issue. He's more concerned… About showing proper care for the people. And this is what the gospel does. You see, the willful violation of conscience contains in itself the very seeds of destruction. I want you to think about this. The conscience is a very, very important aspect of humanity. God places a conscience in every heart, and the conscience actually both in the believer and unbeliever functions to either accuse us when we're doing something wrong or excuse us of things. Now, let me be very clear. The conscience is not perfect. Conscience may not be rightly informed. Conscience is is by no stretch of the imagination a perfect guide for our souls. In fact, here's the greatest danger of all, the conscience can be seared. The conscience can be seared. You say, how can it be seared? By repeated, willful acts of disobedience. Okay? Your conscience is alive When you're sensitive to the Word of God, when you're sensitive to doing what is right and pleasing to God, and it is informed by the Word of God, it's strengthened by the Word of God, it's bolstered by the Word of God, and some of you in this room, you know this to be true in your own life, your conscience is actually seared, it's deadened to certain things in your life. You're you're excusing sin in your life that you know is blatant sin because for so long you have walked in willful disobedience to the Lord. And and your conscience just becomes deadened and trampled upon. And Paul says, listen, the conscience is so serious. We never, ever want to trample on anyone's conscience because it is a protective measure and a help for them to walk faithfully before the Lord, which is the most important thing of all in the Christian life. And so here, what you have to do if you're stronger... In the lord you can't just dismiss people or ignore people or insult people you disagree with you need to patiently work with people love them care for them and yes work to inform them we need to understand how our actions can create problems but we must also ask this second question what can my actions prevent these are the problems that are created but all of our actions have actual consequences some of our consequences are things that are produced But here what we see is that in the believer's life and in the family of God, when we are not focusing on unity and we're fighting over secondary issues, that kind of division prevents some very specific things from happening, and it prevents specifically, listen, the gospel from working itself out in our community. We see this in four ways. I want to show them to you quickly. First is gospel growth. Here's what we prevent. We prevent gospel growth. That's all the way back to verse 13 again. We put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Listen, all of this language is supposed to help you understand that the goal of the Christian life is spiritual growth. Our mission statement in our church is lost, people saved. Come on, somebody help me out with the middle part. Saved people. What? Come on, matured. Matured a growing process, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God, in case you're new and you don't know the rest of it. But, but the whole point is this, discipleship is a process of spiritual growth and maturity and what we prevent when we squabble and quarrel over secondary issues, we prevent especially, especially but not, not entirely, the weaker believer from growing exponentially in likeness. We put a, a hindrance in front of them. We trip them up. We slow down the progress they're making in the Lord, and that's a disastrous, disastrous reality. The growth is hindered because the weak person is being lured into rebellion. That's what's happening, to go against their conscience and then to be destroyed in a sense. We should be making it easier for people to grow in the Christian life, not harder, our objective with one another is to, to help, you know, boost people up, if I can use that imagery. You know, don't just throw a giant hurdle in front of somebody. Our goal is to say, hey, I'm going to just, I, I'm going to kneel down, or you, you climb on my back and jump over whatever might be in front of you because I am for your Christian growth, I'm not against your Christian growth. And you see, flaunting liberties, listen to this, if you're strong in the Lord, if you're, if you're strong in your freedoms in Christ, listen to me, flaunting and, and your liberties and boasting in your liberties can actually be a means of hindering the growth of others. So be careful. Be careful. Second thing that's prevented here is gospel love. Look at verse 15. He says this, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Now remember the end of chapter 13? He's described to us the whole goal of the Christian life is to pay what you owe, this debt of love, that love is supposed to be the dominating characteristic of the Christian life. And and what we see here is this, balancing our Christian liberties and and Christian love is often a a fine line to walk. It's it's not always easy. I I love what Martin Luther wrote. He said this, a Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. And then the next sentence is this, a Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. You follow that? Let me say that again. A Christian man or woman is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. He's been liberated in Christ. He's free to do all kinds of things in the Lord. But when you understand this freedom in Christ, listen to what he says. A Christian man or woman is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Our freedom in Christ ought to most often be expressed in how we serve others and love them We are all immensely free in Christ. That's what the gospel teaches. Our only bondage is the bond of love to our fellow believers. And by the way, this this verse implies that you have knowledge of that situation, of that individual, of what their struggle looks like, which means this. You are responsible as a Christian for what you know. If you know your brother or sister struggles with a particular issue, if you know that their conscience is maybe ill-informed in a particular area, then here's what the Bible says. You are your brother's keeper. You're responsible to to love them and to care for them in the right ways. If you know someone is weaker and are aware of that, it's on you to look out for them by watching your own behavior and actions. That's the loving thing to do according to the Word of God. To disregard a fellow believer's crisis of conscience is to actually make light of the profound and costly nature of Christ's love expressed in the gospel. I I need you to hear this. Picture the ironic contrast between the self-giving love of Christ. We just celebrated this this past weekend. The selfless, life-giving, sacrificial love of Christ. Dying the shameful death of crucifixion to save those who were weak. That's all of us. Romans 5, 6, and then contrast that with the astonishing selfishness of a strong believer who would flippantly overturn this profound and costly act for the sake of a food or drink preference it's amazing to consider that, isn't it? The irony, the fact that people can say, man, I love that Christ died for me when I was weak. I love that Christ gave up everything in order to save me because I was so weak, I couldn't save myself. But I don't love the gospel enough to give up certain foods, certain drink, certain preferences, certain opinions in order to serve others who are weak. It's in direct contradiction to the very gospel we believe, the very gospel that saved us My actions can prevent gospel growth, gospel love, thirdly, gospel witness. Look at verse 16. He says, Do do not let what you regard as good, speaking of our Christian liberties, be spoken of as evil. Just before that, he said this, You are not walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. He's linking this all back to the gospel. I hope you see that. You see, the point is that if the strong in Rome insist on putting their theological convictions into practice in a way that damages the faith of the weak, the resulting divisiveness will bring justified criticism from unbelievers and will actually hinder the progress of the gospel. That's what he's saying here here's what he's he's doing he's saying when the world looks in and sees people in the church who care more about themselves and their liberties than they do about their fellow community members, it doesn't display the love of Christ. The gospel that we believe is so good, the liberties that we enjoy in Christ that are so good will now be looked upon as sources of evil. The world will look in and say, I I thought they're supposed to be a people of love and kindness and grace and mercy, but what I see is pride and power plays and abuse. It doesn't display the the righteousness, the peace, and the joy of the gospel that's supposed to be characteristic of the people of God. It actually looks no different. Listen, it looks no different from the world around us, and this is the very concern that Paul has had since the beginning of chapter 12, remember? He's appealed to us on the mercies of God, To not be conformed to this world, but to be, what, transformed by the renewing of our mind. And what he says is this, if the church, listen, if we as a community, if we look no different from the world around us, if what characterizes us in here is selfishness, is quarreling over stupid things, if, if we're willing to trample on one another in order to be right in arguments and conversations, if we're willing to step on one another so that we look better, what he's saying is that that's what the world does. What do you have to offer the world if you look exactly like the world and the thing you claim to believe in, the thing that's supposed to save you and transform you, doesn't make you look any different from any of them out there? So, the world will look at the gospel and say, well, what's so good about that? Verse 18, he reiterates this idea. He says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God, and listen to this language, and approved by men. In other words, if you do this right, not only is God pleased, the world around looks at it and says, wow, that's remarkable, that's honorable, that's love, that's right, Let me say it like this. It is not our demonstration of Christian liberty that commends our faith to the world, but our demonstration of Christian love. This is what Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this the world will know that you're my disciples, by how you love one another. This is love, that that you lay down your life for your friend. Here's what else we prevent through our sinful actions, gospel service Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And then verse 20 do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. I mean, just listen to that language. That's a remarkable statement. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. You see, the way we act toward one another in these matters can either be a help or a hindrance to God's work among us. The word that Paul uses here for destroy is a different word than he used just previously above. It's the same word that Jesus uses in reference to the temple when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Make no mistake about it, the body of Christ is described in the New Testament as the temple of the living God. And what Paul says here is that if you are willing to destroy the temple of the living God, be very, very careful. Through the gospel, God has united us in order to grow, strengthen, and mature us as a body. And so the implication is, may we never tear down through our greedy selfishness what God is calling us to help build up through our gospel service. Okay, third question here is this, what actions then should I practice? What actions then should I… how how should I respond? What should I do? Well, first, let me just say this. Here's what you're not being asked to do. If you are in the strong category and you uh, understand your freedoms in Christ, you are not being asked to surrender your convictions on secondary issues. That's not what he's saying. Paul doesn't just say like, okay, You know what? Just pretend like you believe what they believe. Just pretend and and pretend like you don't have any real convictions on it. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not asking you to pretend, he's not asking you to compromise your convictions. No, look at verse 14. I mean, Paul himself is not afraid to say who's right. He says, I know and am persuaded, and then he drops the trump card, in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. I mean, do you hear the trump card there? He's like, I'm on team Jesus in this, okay? If you ever going to drop a trump card, just throw it down. Well, me and Jesus believe this. He says, look, none of this stuff is unclean. He he knows what the Scriptures teach. He knows. He knows. He understands that the Old Testament law has now been fulfilled in Christ. He understands that there there is now no unclean thing, so to speak. If you read through the book of Leviticus, you're going to read all about unclean things, things that the Jews in particular were not allowed to touch, not allowed to eat, not allowed to do. They made them unclean. But here he's saying, listen, Jesus Christ has come along and he has fulfilled everything in the law. He was made unclean so that we could now be cleansed from all of our unrighteousness. And so he says, listen, now, now all the stuff that you weren't allowed to do, so to speak, not not the moral aspects of the law, there's still morality that needs to be followed that's built into the law and built into the fabric of society. But he says, listen, when it comes to those civil especially and ceremonial aspects, he says, listen, they, they don't mean anything anymore, In fact, Jesus would say this in Mark chapter 7. He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, that is, make him unclean, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus was addressing the Pharisees. The Pharisees who claimed, "Listen, listen, uncleanness is all about externals, and what Jesus was doing was turning the tables around and saying, listen, the bigger issue with uncleanness is not about what you do or don't do. It's a matter of your own heart before the Lord. In fact, all of your actions are simply a manifestation of your heart before the Lord. It's not what goes into a person that defiles, what comes out. In other words, what comes out reveals what's actually inside, and what's inside is the real problem that actually needs to be dealt with. And so what Paul says is there's nothing intrinsically bad about the meat and the wine, but what you do with them can be a big problem. Because the problem is your heart, and your heart likes to take good things that God gives and distort them and ruin them. By the way, this is what Satan does from the very beginning of Scripture— Do you realize that? Satan is upheld at the beginning of Scripture. He's compared to God, okay? God is a creator, amen? Okay, Satan is not a creator. God creates, Satan decreates. Satan takes what God makes good… And then he distorts them. He taints them with sin. And he ruins the beautiful, precious, good things that God gives to humanity. And Satan constantly, you know, Satan's Satan's role in many ways in your life as a Christian or even as an unbeliever is to convince you to take the good things that God creates and to use them for sinful purposes. He wants to do it in all kinds of ways. And the principle here is is simple. Good things can become bad things when they become abused things or misused things. And what should we do with those things? Maybe we should just get rid of them. If they can lead to something bad, we should obviously just get rid of it, right? Well, let me ask you a couple questions. Is food sin? You can answer. Some of you are like, is this a trick question? (laughs) Is food sin? Is gluttony a sin? Should we abolish food? good answer. Is alcohol a sin? No. No. Is abusing it a sin? Yes. Yes. Should we abolish alcohol? Some of you are like, yes. (laughs) So, here's what happens. Again, some of us associate some of these things with our sinful past, and we think of them as evil, and I'm not suggesting that some of you shouldn't have boundaries in your life to prevent you from going back to places that have done great damage to you. You should. There's a difference in putting up boundaries in your life to prevent you from going to those places and then imposing them on others and suggesting that if others do some of these things in the right way that they're also somehow in sin. Our problem is that we can quickly condemn the thing itself when the real problem is what the human heart wants to do with them. And we do this again. We do this with alcohol, we do this with food, we do this with sex, we do this with music, we do this with so many things we do this with. I love what Martin Luther said. He he was so good on, on some of these issues. And he was a man who understood his freedoms. Some of you may not know this, but he actually had a little brewery in his basement. He said this, do not think that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object that is abused. Men can go wrong with wine and women. Should we abolish women? It's what we do with, what, listen, what we do with good things that can make them bad. And look what he says in verse 22. Remember, that we're talking about our actions, how we should respond. It says this, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. You know what you should do? If you have freedom in Christ and you know that there are people around you who don't share that same freedom, don't quite understand it yet, here's what he says you get to do. Keep it between yourself and God he says, you don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to stop doing it. You can do it before the Lord. And others, listen, do it in the privacy of your own home. Do it with other like-minded Christians who hold the same conviction. So long as it's not actually sin and it's a Christian liberty that's legitimate, go ahead and do it before the Lord. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Like, you're fine, that's what he says. You're totally fine. You don't need to be condemned in your conscience for doing things you know you're free in Christ to do. You don't have to change your convictions on these secondary matters. You don't have to change how you do this, do it to the glory of God, but you are, listen, you are to change your approach. That's what you can't miss. You are to change your actions. You can't impose this on other persons. You must inform other people, but you can't press it upon them. You can't force them and make them do something they're not comfortable doing. You can't insist that they do what you have freedom to do if their conscience won't allow it. That is sin for you, and it's sin for them. He's not saying that your liberties are a sin. He's saying you need to choose at times to abstain even from what is not sin. You can do it in the presence of your own home, but you may may have to abstain in other places at other times. And His teaching here is situational. That's what's so helpful here. Look at verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. If you're in the presence of that brother, that's the situation. Don't do it. Don't even think about it. One one commentator says this, I found this phrase so helpful. He says, our brother or sister's weakness is the measure of our duty. Our brother or sister's weakness is the measure of our duty. That's so good. That's how we are supposed to respond. Listen, no bragging about your liberties, no flaunting, no boasting in your liberties, and certainly, listen, certainly not trying to harm other people with, liber- you know, with your liberties. You just walk around like, mmm, bacon, isn't it bacon good? Maybe, yeah, I know you don't like it, I know you're not comfortable with it, but I'm just gonna sit here, nah, nah, nah just full bacon sandwich. Like throwing your liberties in people's faces, I mean, that's so ungodly. It's so unchristlike. It is so unhelpful. Listen, eat all the bacon and drink all the wine you want when you're not around them in moderation. That's not hypocritical, that's biblical. Okay, lastly, what can my actions produce? These are the good things that can flow out of the right actions in the believer. And we're going to end on this. The strong abstaining for the sake of the weak, listen, has the potential to produce some remarkable results and blessings. And our actions, I want to just pull out four things quickly. The first thing our actions can produce is this, the evidence of God's gospel. It actually proves that we have truly understood and believed and been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, Paul says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. In other words, if you know this and you respond appropriately, you are walking in love and you're proving that you understand the gospel. You are proving that you understand what God has done for you. I mean, here's what the Bible says. Listen, all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were all weak. We were all unable to be right with God. How did God respond to our weakness? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. See, the gospel is this. God saw us. We were helpless. We were hopeless. He didn't despise us. He didn't spit on us. He didn't just cast us directly into hell. Instead, He loved us by sacrificing the glory of heaven, by wrapping Himself in human flesh, by coming to this sin-stained earth, living a perfect life, and being nailed to a cross of wood like a common criminal. That's what God did. That's what He gave up in order for us to know His love and to be made strong in Christ Jesus. And when you respond in the same way, You're proving you get the gospel. You're proving that it's impacted your life. And the question you need to ask, if that's not how you respond, is this. Who do I care most about? It was worth it for Jesus to die for that person. Is it not worth it for you or me to abstain from something for them? We are never to love our liberties more than we love people john piper says that the cross not only purchases the faith of the weak but the faithfulness of the strong in our sacrifice our actions produce the evidence of god's gospel secondly they produce the essence of god's kingdom and this is very similar but verse 17 is such a powerful passage Listen to what he says. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he says, listen, listen. if if you have been saved by the gospel, that means that you have been given a new citizenship. God's kingdom has a distant reality, a future reality, where, where Jesus will return and He will set up a, a kingdom on earth where He will rule and reign. We will rule and reign with Him in that kingdom. Listen, there's going to be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be no weak Christians. Every conscience will be perfectly formed to the will of God. Everything will be good. We will only forever do good. We will always bring glory to God in all of our actions. But that day is not yet here. And the Bible says the kingdom of God is actually broken into the present through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That kingdom has now come upon us in a spiritual sense. The king is ruling and reigning, and every time somebody bows the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, here's what they're declaring. I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I serve King Jesus. He is my ruler and my master, and what characterizes him and his kingdom now characterizes me. So, what is it that characterizes the kingdom of God, both in the future and here and now? Righteousness. We have been made righteous. We have been washed and cleansed from all of our sin. We have been restored into a right relationship with God. all of our sin has been dealt with in full on the cross. And the best, I, t- I chatted with somebody last week and they told me they never heard this. They, they've grown up in the church, they've, they've heard the gospel and they're, they're still wrestling with shame and guilt and they know Jesus died for their sin. They, they know that he paid for the sin but they still wrestle with this guilt. And I, and, I, and, I, and I looked at this person and I said, I said, but do you understand you don't need to feel shame and guilt over your past sin. You can rejoice that not only has your sin been cast as far as the East is from the West, but God has actually given you, he's given and credited to your account, the perfect, righteous, life of Jesus Christ. The very perfection you need to stand in the presence of God for all eternity is yours by grace through faith in Christ. And she looked at me and she said this, she's like, I've never heard that before. She's like, I've never heard that before. And you need to understand something. Listen, the kingdom of God is about the righteousness that Jesus gives to you that you could never earn. And as a result, listen, you live out a righteous life because His power is now at work within you. So you do things that are now pleasing Him, not perfectly that day again. That's coming. But your life is now characterized by that very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Secondly, peace. The kingdom of heaven is characterized by peace. We we have been given peace through the blood of Jesus. Peace with God, where there was once enmity and war and hostility, where once we were rebels, now through the cross we have received peace. And Christian, listen, if you have received peace with God, you now live that peace out in the community of faith. And joy man, a joy that's been given to us because, listen, we know our sins are forgiven. We know we've been given life eternal. We have a hope that's not in this world. And that means this, that our hope is not in our circumstances. It's not in how good or bad our day was. Our hope is in what Jesus has done for us. One author says this. He says, the kingdom of God is not operative in your life if your rights are so important to you that you are willing to separate from a brother who does not agree with you. The fact is, the man who feels he must demonstrate his emancipation on every possible occasion is a slave in spite of his apparent freedom, for the need to prove his liberty has become a tyranny. Put that in your metaphorical pipe and smoke it, or literal pipe, freedom, freedom in Christ. (laughs) Listen, whether we are strong or weak… We are to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, focusing not on the externals, but on the elements of eternity, righteousness, peace, and joy that are infused in us and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you abstain for the sake of another person, you are showing that your joy, your peace, and your righteousness is found in Him, in Him alone. Next, the edification of God's people. Verse 19 he says this, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and listen to this language and for mutual upbuilding. We are showing ourselves to be servants of Christ and this theological principle is worked out in community. Paul's authority as an apostle was, as an, an apostle was for the building up of the church. He talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4 and the key ingredient in all of this is love. Everything he did was to strengthen the church And with that kind of heartbeat for the church, it's no wonder that Paul wanted the believers in Rome to make every effort to do what leads to peace, to the mutual edification of the family of God, not a false peace, but seeking to build each other up, to inform the conscience, to care for one another, and in doing so, we win the weak. Paul has the goal not to win the argument. His goal is to win the brother and strengthen his faith and strengthen their conscience. With a balanced and gentle approach, patient teaching, the weak can become strong. And don't miss this, church. If you are a follower of Christ, you actually have been given by God a responsibility to build others up. This is mutual, to make disciples, to serve one another, to be a part of the community of faith, the family of God. You are called not to be a consumer, but to be a contributor. And lastly, our actions can produce the evangelism of God's world. Again, verse 16 and verse 18. Let me just reiterate what he says here in verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. You see, we have the potential to win more than just a week here, church. This is why this is so critical. The unselfish character of our actions will be attractive to unbelievers. And Paul knew this in his ministry. Listen to what he said this in, in 1 Corinthians 9. He said to the, to the Jew, I became a Jew to win the Jew. He goes on to say, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become, he says, all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is it, loved ones. And Christians can lose sight of the mission, and we can become inwardly focused on who is right about points of doctrine or points of practice, and we can not agree to disagree. We can just agree, disagree. But it takes looking past disputable matters and focusing afresh on the person and work of Christ. And I'm being reminded of his great commission to take the gospel into all the world that allows the church to now hold disputable matters lightly, to say, these things aren't that big of a deal. We've got bigger fish to catch. There's a world of people out there. And part of the way we win the world is by willing to give up our liberties in Christ. Paul's like, I'll give up anything I'm allowed to do. I'm free in Christ. I'll give it all up so that I might win some because the eternal reality of the souls of people is far greater than the temporal pleasures of this world. Who cares about what I can enjoy here and now if I can win people into the enjoyment of God's presence for all eternity? Do you see? Do you see how radical this is and how important it is that we have the mission right before our eyes? This is not compromise, church. It's sacrifice. And this is what Jesus did for us, he never forsook his deity. He forsook His privilege, never forsook the truth, only His rights. Why? So that He might win us to Himself. And if Jesus is our everything, we must be willing to give up anything, not only to follow Him, but to win the world to Him. There is much at stake when it comes to our actions toward one another. My final encouragement for us, for my own heart, is this. Stop judging one another's convictions, start judging your own conduct. Love Christ's body, both weak and strong, in the same way that Christ has loved you. And in so doing, you are serving Christ and are acceptable to God, and in the end, that's all that matters. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, for whether you eat or drink or don't, do all to the glory of God. That is what we must be about in all of life, Through all our actions, we live for the praise of His glorious grace.